Hello and welcome to another edition of the Pre-Raphaelite podcast and today I'm very delighted to introduce you to Dinah Rowe who's agreed to come and do an episode with us which is fantastic. Hello Dinah, thank you for being here. Hello, thank you very much for having me on, I'm delighted. Dinah, would you like to um, introduce yourselves to our listeners? Uh, yes. So I'm a reader in 19th century literature at Oxford Brookes University, and I specialize in the Rossettis and Pre-Raphaelitism and Victorian poetry in general. It's fantastic because today the new Rossetti exhibition opens to the public, so it's great to have more Rossetti scholars on the show. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great way to kind of celebrate it because I'll be thinking about the Rossettis all day anyway. So thank yeah, you for yeah. giving me an, an outlet, <laughs> a healthy outlet for discussing about the Rossetti. It's a bit of a Rossetti day. I'm going to put my throw my phone over there because it keeps vibrating <laughs> with notifications. <laughs> Diana, you've had quite a long academic association with the Pre-Raphaelites, and I suppose we'd better start at the beginning and just think about how how did you first become interested in them? How did you get into the Pre-Raphaelites? Okay, uh, well, once upon a time, a very, very long time ago, in the 1990s, I believe, <laughs> I visited Birmingham, and I went to the art gallery, and there was an Edward Burne-Jones exhibition, and it was really beautiful and really overwhelming, so they kind of, I don't know how they did it, they got kind of every Burne-Jones ever, <laughs> And there were just rooms and rooms of it. And by the end, I felt slightly kind of almost, uh, I don't know, a bit hallucinatory uh, with with all of that Burne Jones weirdness, um, you know, mermaids and people growing out of trees and myths and magic and sleeping. And it, and it was just I, I did it at just the right age because I was sort of young enough to be really receptive to that and not as eye-rolling as I might have been had I first encountered it, say, in middle age, I think. You know, I was still kind of open to kind of romance and myth and fantasy and the Gothic. And I wasn't, I wasn't yet kind of closed off to those ideas as some, some sort of childish thing that I should put behind me, which is what a lot of silly people think about pre-Raphaelitism. You know, that's that's virtually identical to my, my introduction to them. And, and actually, yes. it's, it's, be, it's become a bit of a thing on the podcast. So many people get interested in pre-Raphaelitism through visiting Birmingham Museum in particular. It's, it's a really strange thing. It, it, that was my way in, Burne Jones and the myth and the the mix of really beautiful but really strange at the same time. Yep. Birmingham is one of my top museums in the world for art. I just, I love visiting it. It's, it's such a wonderful institution. Um, it's so, so brilliantly located. I love, I love the city. I love how kind of close the museum is kind of culturally to kind of what's going on in the city. It feels it feels immersed in kind of a part of everything. And I found it very I always find it very warm and inviting. So, you know, it's it's and it obviously has so much pre-Raphaelite stuff. 
and 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 that sort of history. So there's there's always something pre-Raphaelite going on there. So yeah, I, I pop in whenever I get the chance. So what was it about pre-Raphaelite poetry in particular that drew you? Because I, I know that's an area where, where where you work and where you're sort of most prominent, I suppose. What was it about poetry in particular? Because it's it's quite a niche. Did you just fall into it like me? <laughs> I like the idea of falling into it. Um, yeah, I suppose, I think I'd always been a literary person. I've, oh, and I've always loved poetry and I've always loved words. Um, so images and pictures, I love that too. But I was always kind of incompetent myself in terms of trying to draw or paint or, you know, or um, I understand the art world. I always felt a bit sort of worried about my ability to get to grips with all of that, especially because I don't practice visual art. And this this is possibly silly, but what I like about being a sort of a, a, a literary critic is I know what it feels like to write something. So I feel okay um discussing other people's writing because I know what it feels like to be a writer I don't I'm not a practitioner I don't know what it feels like to be a painter I feel like it would be presumptuous of me to kind of, to kind of go, yeah. go on about that without being able to produce anything like that um myself I don't mean anything good I mean anything even remotely like that I can't kind of I can't draw a stick man so I'm <laughs> But yeah, I suppose those are all sort of negative reasons. So the, the reason I got into pre-Raphaelite poetry is because, because of a sort of love of literature and because I understand, I like to think that I understand words um, and, and the way they move and uh, the, the connections that they suggest. And I like to pursue those connections. That's fantastic. Sounds wonderful. I think, yeah, they, again, very similar to me. I'd, I'd love to be able to draw and paint. Have, um, mediocre abilities. <laughs> what about Christina Rossetti, though? Because I know you've been working with Christina Rossetti quite a lot recently. What What's the big big draw to, to her? What I like about Christina Rossetti is that she encourages really careful reading, the kind of reading I like to do. So she doesn't, her poetry doesn't get worked up at the surface very much. Um, it's quite simple. And because it's simple, people can dismiss it as simplistic. And it's not, it's incredibly complex. One of the hardest things to do in life is to communicate, to put things across briefly, simply, and beautifully. And Christina Rossetti does this like over a thousand times, you know, because she's got, I don't know, like 1,200 poems that, that we know of. Um, and she does this sort of really beautifully again and again. So I really admire her ability as a poet to make it look easy i really like I, I i really like that answer and i like the idea of a simple surface so i where, where do you think that comes from with 
uh, Christina Rossetti? Is it due to the religious nature often of some of the poems or perhaps even the, I don't want to say the word childish, but I, I know she wrote children's nursery rhymes and it, there's something there, isn't there, in, in how she's doing it and, and what the purpose of what she's writing. Yes, the nursery rhymes are a great example of, of Christina Rossetti at her best because they seem really simple and they're not. There's one from uh, her, her nursery rhyme collection, Sing Song, and I'll probably misquote it because I love to misquote things, um, but it's motherless baby and babyless mother bring them together to love one another. So on the surface, you think, no, isn't that sweet? Babies and mothers and love. Oh, that's cute. And then if you think about it for a minute, you think, um, babyless mother. What does what is a babyless mother? How are you a mother if you don't have a baby? What happened to that baby? Um, oh, is this is this baby dead? Is this baby no longer with us? Has this baby been taken away by somebody? What babyless mother? Uh, and then motherless baby. Oh, so there's a motherless baby. So there's a baby without a mother. So what's happened to her? You know, bring them together to love one another. So these two people who really need each other for reasons which don't seem very happy, you know, bring them together to love one another. You realize how important that is. This isn't just some ditty over a cradle to get somebody to go to sleep. These are two people who desperately need one another. And there's also, I also really, really like babyless mother because that makes me think of, of ways that you could be a mother kind of without, without having a baby. You know, may, maybe even hinting at, um, even if you, you aren't kind of a biological mother, you can be a mother in, in different ways. And I think it's kind of pushing it. What, what does mother, what does that actually mean? And I really, I really like that idea a mother and other and another, you know, and, and, and it starts to, it starts to whirl around a bit. And th that's just one example of just a really simple poem that can be this throwaway thing, except you have to return to it and think about it again and again, and then it gets bigger. Yeah. For four lines, there seems like a lot in that. That's not one I've, I've come across or paid much attention to possibly. I have, I have got a nice copy of Sing Song. Um, it, just with my gothic head on, I immediately went to they're both dead. But, but <laughs> that yeah. Must... <laughs> yeah. Well, Arthur Hughes does the illustration and it's uh, I think a young woman being handed a baby um, over a grave. So, you know, that, that kind of suggests... <laughs> That, that that does kind of suggest the the gothic interpretation, but Arthur Hughes's illustrations are a whole other whole other ball of wax. But um, actually, I I I, I want to ask you in fact because I know you study Swinburne, um, who's also fascinated with children, isn't he? Despite kind of not being a parent. Yeah, yeah. But just loves kids, you know, and writes about them <laughs> all the time, and is so like overjoyed by their. Existence. Christina Rossetti's the same you know, never had children. Yes, of course. 
but really appreciates them in some kind of really profound way. Yeah, it's. A, I, I think Swinburne grew into that. I, I, th yeah. I think this was in his sort of later period when he'd settled and stabilised right. and work, worked through a lot of his problems. But there is there's something there, isn't there? I think I think maybe it's it's hard. Maybe it's that idea of sort of being childless and trying to find trying to find the good in a in a world, particularly as you get older. Perhaps I, I'm not sure. I mean, how, how old was Christina Rossetti about when she wrote? Sing song and her, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah, so she'd be in her sort of 40s. Yeah, possibly similar to Swinburne, 40s, 50s. Yeah. I, I don't know how much how much truth there is in this, but I, I'm I, I've read a number of biographies of Swinburne. Apparently, he had a bit of a thing for Christina Rossetti at one point. I think that would have been the most interesting relationship in pre Raphaelite history. <laughs> Yeah, it really went well. I mean, it it went pretty well. Um, you know, they considering how different their views were on religion, <laughs> um, but they they admired each other's work. Yeah, yeah. I, I love you know, and there are these. There's this story which always gets repeated about Christina Rossetti covering over bits of Swinburne with a piece of paper just some inappropriate stuff that she, you know, didn't want to read and she, so she would just cover those <laughs> words or that phrase with like a paper. But what nobody ever talks about is, but she did that so that she could read the rest. Yes. She's just like, I can't actually cope with that. Um, but, you know, she really liked him and she really liked his work and they, they corresponded and uh, you know they they sent each other their works, um, so it's just it's a sort of really interesting relationship. Uh, when she kind of stopped writing new poetry, he wrote a really a really great poem asking her to write some more. Um, he dedicated a century of roundels to her. Yes, he did. Yeah. You know, so it's just it it's sort of the world's least likely um, sympathetic kind of nearly friendship I think of but yeah it, it would have been interesting to see where, where that would have gone so <laughs> <laughs> um you you've just been working on a complete edition of Christina Rossetti have you, have you been editing that yes for my sins um <laughs> yes that's for the the Longman annotated English poets series so the brief for that um is they, they really want to concentrate on the annotation, which is great. So the, the idea is, can you provide useful annotations so that the re to help the reader through the poem? Um, so this is great. I mean, this is actually a dream project. Um, yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. And you get, to, you get to kind of chase every nerdy little thing up that you've ever wanted to pursue. You actually get to do that. You know, that's the job. So one of the things which I'm really, really enjoying about that is I am arranging the poems by composition date, which has never been done before. So okay. the old, um, fantastic, complete Rossetti um, does it by kind of publication date. Yes. 
And then there's a volume of uh, poems unpublished during her lifetime and that sort of thing. We, and and it's, it's a brilliant edition, I love it. Um, but what I wanted to do was do it by order of composition date so you could have an idea of how Christina Rossetti progresses over time. Yes, because I imagine that could tell you if you go sort of by composition date, you, yes, how the poetry progresses, but it might, I mean, does it unveil anything for you? Is is there, are, are there any new things about Christina Rossetti that you found out by organising in this way? Yes, yes, um, absolutely. Uh, the, and my, my favourite kind of discovery so far is that Christina Rossetti was a carer, which gives us a new, uh, a new kind of uh, prism through which to to view her work. And I noticed this because I was looking at the poems in Time Flies, which is 1885. So this is very late, you know, and she, she's middle aged. And Time Flies is her uh, a reading diary. So. What she does, she has an entry for each day of the year. But this is each day of the Christian year, really. And the entries will be very short. They will be prose for a mix of prose and poetry, usually about a page, a half a page long. And she starts recycling some poems from very, very early on in her career. And they start to appear in Time Flies in 1885. This seems odd to me. Why would you be returning to, to that sort of work? Also, why is she doing this new form, mixing kind of poetry and prose in this funny reading diary? That just is odd. It works beautifully. Uh, Time Flies, if you ask me, is, is actually the closest she ever gets to autobiography. So if you want to know about Christina Rossetti, read, that's the one to read. But looking at the chronology, I realized that during the time she was writing Time Flies, she was a full-time carer for her mother and her two aunts, uh, Charlotte and Eliza Polidori. All three of these women are in their 80s. Christina Rossetti herself is in her 50s, and she's at home looking after them kind of all the time. People are writing her saying, why aren't you producing new poetry? Why aren't you doing new brilliant stuff all the time? You know, because she's on her knees, because she's knackered. <laughs> and, you know, she's and she's she's caring for three people with whom she lived her whole life. So she's very close to them as well. And anybody who's a carer knows, you know, this is this is emotional labor. This is physical labor. You know, this is this is a labor of love. This is this is hard stuff. And I never ever would have noticed this, really, if, if I hadn't been putting things in, in chronological order and thinking about the connections between her work, you know, sort of what she was doing at, at the time and the form of her work. And I, and I suppose, yes, hard, hard work and, and taxing on your time, but you, your time to go out and socialise and be exposed to sort of current ideas and things that are happening and art exhibitions and church exhibitions and all the things she was interested in. I imagine that can't happen as much anymore. Yeah, yeah. So so her life, you know, 
her her life kind of not closes down. That's actually wrong. You know, one one of the things I thought uh, about that that period was, isn't it extraordinary that she actually writes Time Flies, though, because it's so good. It's really good. You know, I'm, it's, that's one of those works I'm happy to put my hand up and say, this is really, really good stuff. And this is formally innovative as well. So she's doing formal innovation. Um, and I mean, it's a bit of a needs must thing. Um, but in Time Flies, she talks about occupations and interruptions. And I think she's talking about caring. Um, and so she she says, you know, you there are times when you're occupied with something and then you get interrupted. And that's just really, really annoying because you don't want to be interrupted. You want to keep doing whatever you're doing. However, she, she then says, you know, Providence suggests that we should look at interruptions in maybe another way. Maybe there's a lesson that we should be learning from these interruptions. Maybe there's another way, there's a way to, to rethink this. And, you know, I, I, I'm persuaded by this, this idea. Um, and for me, during the, the sort of COVID lockdowns, I thought a lot about occupations and, and interruptions because of working kind of full time from home, teaching online, looking after my family, everything just telescoping down to my living room. You know, what, what could I sort of learn from that? What could Christina Rossetti teach me <laughs> while this was, while this was happening? Um, and so, and so I was, I was thinking about ways to kind of reconceptualize caring and, and creativity. So to, to what extent do those things, are those things in conflict, but then to, to what extent can they inform one another? I think you'll know a bit more, but well, you will, you'll, you'll know more about this than I will, but did Christina Rossetti not have some sort of early experience of this? Did she not care for a dad? Yes. Yeah. When, when he was dying. Yeah. Yes. So he'd had, a really, really terrible kind of psychological and emotional and physical breakdown. Um, following the, the publication of his work on Dante Alighieri, which basically got a big thumbs down from everybody. Um, so, and then he just, he just went to a massive decline. Um, so the problem with this, of course, is who supports the family? So he can no longer work. Um, so Christina Rossetti's mother and sister have to go out to work. Um, and her brother, William, has to go to work in the tax office at 15. Um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, of course, somehow, somehow being Dante Gabriel Rossetti, <laughs> slides out of all work obligations and is kind of miraculously is an art school, um, you know, and I think I think William says something really cutting about it and in one of the books, something like he, I don't know, he cost something and contributed nothing or something. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and then so it was Christina's job to stay home and and look after her father, which so she was, you know, what we would call today a young carer. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Very, very stressful, very difficult position to be put in. And also for her, I think probably watching her father's transition from a kind of, you know, quite happy extrovert to kind of an introverted, you know, bitter, melancholy man must have just been really heartbreaking. Yeah, you can't imagine the sort of emotional weight that that would bring because Christina Rossetti, she was only young. What would she have been? 13, 14. Yeah, that's that's quite a thing to go through at a young age. But that's so Victorian, isn't it? You know, the the firstborn son's off at art school and the, the youngest daughter has to stay at home and yeah. pick up the pieces and all, all the others have to go out to work. It's... <laughs> Yeah, no, it's really, it's it's really tragic, you know, for for her. But she she writes this poem which I really like, um, a, a little later than this called "Lines Given with a Pen Wiper," about looking after her father, because um, she's also kind of his amanuensis, so he's still doing scholarly work, and you know, so she's kind of helping him with that, and you know transcribing things and so this this poem is all about handing him a pen wiper which you needed for these old-fashioned pens um because you know you could you could shake them and get ink on the floor you know and get ink on the carpet and just get it everywhere so and she's kind of watching him do this and probably thinking oh you know guess who's gonna have to clean this up um so she kind of lunges forward with the pen wiper hand it to him but it's actually this very compassionate lovely poem about helping her father work and I love I love that it involves a pen so this material object that's also a sign you know of or a symbol for the Rossettis particularly it's the kind of power of, of writing and I like that it's a kind of the pen is a compassionate an object of kind of compassion and care yeah it's um it's interesting the pre-Raphaelites use objects to as as a not necessarily a symbol for other things, but as as a way of imparting meaning onto objects, and they act almost as sort of emb emblems, almost they're emblematic of other things. You know, you know, in this case, the pen. That's just it's perfect for the family, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, and it's great, and it's you know, and it it made me think about. You know, so one of the one of the projects I'm involved in at the, the moment is um, these workshops for carers, poetry workshops for carers. Um, and one of the exercises we do is we think about an object used in caring and then write a poem from the perspective of that object. Oh, that's it's, wonderful. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. And it's, it's amazing what that that sort of opens up. And sometimes, sometimes the voices of those objects can be very funny or very sad or very angry, you know, and, and once you, once you imagine the emotional life of an object, it's just wonderful what gets put in, into play. I was going to ask you about these workshops because that was what what one of my reasons for contacting you? Um, I, I just as it so happens, my 
neighbours subscribed to one, and uh, she didn't know, but she didn't know much about it. I think. I think she searched your name. She saw that you were leading it, and just just searched. She'd see what she'd done, and she sort of came running over and said, "Oh, Dinah Rowe, do you know Dinah Rowe? She's this amazing pre-Raphaelite scholar." I'm like, oh, "Yeah, we we're, we're internet friends. That's okay." <laughs> Hello, Alison, if you're watching, if you're listening, rather. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's, it's fascinating. What, what, I've, what I've been really enjoying about the, the Carers Project is just how many people it's revealing to, to me and to others who are carers mm-hmm. in, yeah. in our lives. The minute I say I'm doing this, you know, 10 people in the room go, I'm, I'm a carer, or I know somebody who's a carer, or I, you know, and, and it's just... It's just amazing, but, you know, also kind of horrifying how many people just have this as a huge part of their lives and you don't even know about it. And they say, yeah. you know, like people I know reasonably well haven't even told me until they find out I'm doing this. And then they're like, oh, can I join? And I think, how do I how do I not know this about you? Yeah, it's it, I, I suppose it's a, a hidden story in many ways. You know, completely, and, and you, you know, as you say, it makes up such a sizable proportion of the population of your friends and the, the the people around you. You know, they're valuable stories. Well, a lot of people I've talked to think that this is just something that that they do. It's just, it's just sort of, oh, this is just this thing. You know, I'm I'm caring. Nobody wants to hear about it. And it's just not, it's sort of not of interest or something in some way. And I think, I think one of the, one of the effects of the the COVID-19 pandemic is it's made people think, I hope, a little bit more about, about that, about who, who is doing all the, the caring. Yeah. How we're, yeah. how we're looking after each other this sort of previously invisible thing becoming a bit more visible. And I think all of the working from home stuff yes. that's gone on and all the online stuff. And I think we're hiding our domestic lives a little less. And I think that's great. And I, th- yeah. I think we need to, I think we need to, to not hide what's going on, you know, in our lives to, you know, to, to present this sort of professional or something, some sort of glossy vision to, to the world. And I think I think it's perfectly reasonable to to have a, a home life that you can integrate. I think one of the things for me that came out of COVID-19 was that with this was there seemed to be a bit of a flourishing in not necessarily neighborliness, but just in keeping an eye out on people around you that you know who might be vulnerable or might need something and you know it's not it's not caring as 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 you're working with it but it's just a sense of having an eye out and an ear out for other people you know and that's it's been foregrounded I think the last few years and I think that's well that's a good thing surely yeah I, I I hope so but you know and then, and then there's always the the question of you know who cares for for carers? Yeah, absolutely. You know? And that's you know, and, and that's something I'm very keen to think about because one of the things that the carers workshops has revealed to me, 
really, really pleasingly, um, is that, you know, carers can write some really good poetry. Really, really cracking stuff. And I didn't, I sort of didn't know what to expect when I started these workshops. And so some people who come have never written creatively ever. Um, and then somehow, and it's so interesting what, what they have produced and so startling and, and amazing and formerly, formerly interesting. And, you know, I'm ashamed to say that when I started, I didn't, I didn't actually expect it would produce good poetry. <laughs> really, I didn't, I didn't, I just thought, well, you know, we'll write some poems and we'll get some, and then, like I said, I'm just knocked out repeatedly over how, how very good it is. What do you think that is? Do you think it's a particularly unique insight into the world? I, yeah, I, think, I like that, actually. <laughs> that, that may be it. That, that, that may be it. Um, yeah, and a sort of, the other, the other nice things come out of these, these workshops is a, a sort of sense of community. Uh, yeah. But a sense of community not based solely around caring, but also creativity. Yes. And it's just, it's really nice to watch, to watch as carers, the, the more confident they get with writing, um, that kind of confidence is also linked to communicating with one another um, in, in the workshops and to that sense of a kind of writer's, writer's community, a writerly identity. That's quite a nice, a nice sort of tie to the pre-Raphaelite, really, in, in the way that it, it was a, a community that fed into each other's poetry, into each other's paintings, and built off it and adapted it and changed it. And I think also the sense of it, it's the it, it's the act of creativity, isn't it, that that that's so important that that's the doing of things. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's a really great point you make about the c communal nature of, of pre-Raphaelitism. And I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And it's something that I doesn't get talked about um, quite enough. Um, you know, we tend to look at them as sort of individuals. Mm. You know, and and it's it, one of the things I really liked about the, the current Rossetti's exhibition is the way in which uh, Carol Jacobi, the curator, has argued that Elizabeth Siddle and Dante Gabriel Rossetti are actually working together, you know, sharing a studio space, sharing ideas, sharing kind of shapes and forms. And I really like, I really like that notion that these yeah. things aren't actually created in in isolation and you know pre-raphaelites work together which they do yeah absolutely i, th I think there's a, there's a strange thing with the pre-raphaelites we, we, we almost have this romantic idea of the solitary genius you know but it, it i don't think most of them work that way yeah they fed into each other they were friends and hung out together and informed each other's work it's it's a narrative that uh, I, I think they the 
pre-Raphaelite poetics book, defining pre-Raphaelite poetics. That I know. Did you write the postscript for that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that started to to open up this this angle into it. Yes, very much. And it's it's and it's nice to well, it's it's smart, I think, to look at it that way because then you you open up the work, you discover kind of more connections and more things that are going on. But yes, I think you're absolutely right. We're, we are still in love with this romantic idea, romantic with a capital R idea of the end of the solitary genius. And that's just, that isn't what we're dealing with here. Even Christina Rossetti, who people, you know, always go on about kind of her introversion. And, and you know, she's working in a, a communal context, not only creatively with, people in with people in the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood um but also also kind of socially with all of her her church work and district visiting um you know this is not a woman kind of cut off from her community you know she tries to go to the Crimea um as a, oh, as, really? a as a nightingale nurse yeah she oh I didn't know that wow. she put herself forward to be a nightingale nurse um they said she was too young. I think they actually, this is great. Cause I, what, what I love about the, the Nightingale nurses sidebar um, is a lot of them were older women because they thought there wouldn't be kind of dangers of, of romantic entanglements <laughs> where, you know, so they were, they were just, they're like, okay, let's, let's, let's get a solid middle-aged woman who's I had enough of this. Um, <laughs> but who they did take was Eliza Polidori. Uh, Christina yeah. Rossetti's aunt. So she's an original. She went out with Florence Nightingale. She's the original, you know, the original lot of, of Nightingale nurses. Went out into the, the Crimea. She's got the brilliant letters about being out there. Um, yeah. And um, so this, this is a family kind of in very involved in, in caring um, yeah. from, from the very, from the beginning and then of course Christina Rossetti goes to work um at uh, Highgate Penitentiary you know nice. sort of rehabilitation um for prostitutes um so that so that sort of notion of of community care and she does that for a decade so she, she's not at home in her room being like I I can't see anything or hear anything I do not want to engage with the world she she is she's just engaged with a world that the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, emphasis on brotherhood, is not that interested in. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because that's that's not I don't want to say imposed care, that sounds but it's not her family, is it? You know, you know, you, you have a you might have a sense of obligation to care about your dying father or your your mother and your aunts, but She's actively putting herself out there, wanting to mm -hmm. care. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's part of her her sort of religious duty, probably. Mm, yeah, well, these uh, these penitentiaries were, you know, Anglican. Um, so you know, and and part of the grief of is spiritual reform, as as well as social reform. So you get. There's a kind of a notion of a spiritual duty to to care for people in the the community as well. I, I think this opens up really sort of 
nice new narratives on Christina Rossetti. You know, it, it really flies against this idea of the depressive gothic, a very new angle on her, isn't it? Well, I hope, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's and what's what's interesting to, to me in, in thinking about this is I couldn't think about it without speaking with modern day carers. So, and, and, you know, reading their poems and thinking about their work, it sort of informs the way I'm thinking about or rethinking Christina Rossetti. And I think that's, that, that's been so interesting to me. So this kind of invisible or, you know, inaudible kind of demographic and then if you just, if you just be quiet long enough to actually hear, and, you know, and, and, and pay attention and think about it, then you'll, you'll, you'll see and hear new things, you know, which is something I think, I think poetry teaches us to do or appreciating poetry, to look and listen with, with care and, and attention. Diana, are your are your workshops um, are open for booking at the moment, or have you got um, any? At the moment, um, un unfortunately, the the latest one is uh, oversubscribed, and there's a wait list. But if you if you get in touch with me, I can put you on the wait list. And if anybody drops out, then then you can join. They start at on April twenty six. Yeah, so if, if anybody wants to, even it's d.row at brooks.ac.uk. Um, so if you'd like to come on the wait list for those, for the next Law of Carers workshops, please, please do email me. And, it, and what's the view at the end of the project? Is it? Oh, so what, what, what happens at the end? So if you actually, if anybody wants to go to um, uh, carerspoetry.org, you can see there's downloadable PDF uh, anthologies of the poems. And also, you know, one of my favorite bits um, is audio recordings of the poets reading their own work, which are just marvelous. And I, I encourage anyone to, to, to just visit and, and see what they see, what they have to, to, to say and be, you know, prepared to be, bowled over by the, the quality of the, of the work. Fantastic. So that's carerspoetry.org. Yes. Good. I'll pop, a, I'll pop a link in the description. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Diana, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Any projects you've got coming up? Or I, I imagine this is taking up a lot of, a lot of your time with the Christina <laughs> Rossetti editing. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is taking up kind of every, every second. You know, I'm, I'm really <laughs> Christina Rossetti obsessed. Yes, I think I've probably mentioned everything. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an utter pleasure to talk to you. I'm, I'm glad we finally met in, in, in this particular corner of, of virtual reality. And yes. you've asked me some really interesting questions and made me, made me think about kind of even more things. So thank, thank you. For that. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. Just... Thank you so much. And um, thank you to all our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the Pre-Raphaelite Society, you can visit our website, www.preraphaelitesociety.org. I'll pop that in the description below as well. Uh, thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Mm -hmm.